Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Kenny Albert. You're listening to the Broadway Hat Podcast with your host, Kyle Hall, the number one podcast for all things Rangers hockey. Welcome back to the Broadway Hat Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Hall. Well, it's finally here. Training camp is officially underway. On Friday, the Rangers released their training camp roster, which has 35 skaters and 5 goalies listed. Under the NHL CBA, they can carry 23 players in the active NHL roster, as well as a new six-man taxi squad for... The two biggest question marks heading into training camp are the Rangers' fourth-line forwards and the last defense pairing. The top nine forwards appear all to be set, but the bottom three are still in question. One player I believe that will be there is Brendan Lemieux. After re-signing with the Rangers in the offseason, Lemieux brings some grit and sandpaper to the lineup. The other two spots remain open. The battle at center between Brett Howden and Morgan Barron should be very interesting. Howden, who has spent the last two seasons with the Rangers, has yet to take the big leap in his game since coming over from Tampa as a top prospect in the Ryan McDonough trade. Barron is fresh off an excellent college career where he just won the ECAC Player of the Year award. I would love to see the Rangers give Barron a shot here, considering he has shown some great scoring touch at Cornell, as well as being a solid player in his own zone. The battle for the other wing position is pretty wide open as well. The two frontrunners right now are Phil DiGiuseppe and Kevin Rooney. DiGiuseppe played in 20 games to the Rangers last year, including all three playoff games. He played a pretty solid fourth-line role as well. 
Rooney, who was just signed from New Jersey, was one of the top penalty killers for them, which is very important considering that Jesper Faust was let go in the offseason. On the back end, the top four appear set. Truba, D'Angelo, Fox, and Lindgren make a very solid decor, but the last pairing is up in the air. The Rangers could turn to veteran defenseman Brendan Smith, who has had an up-and-down Rangers career, but was pretty good in the playoffs from last year, or new signee Jack Johnson, who just got run out of Pittsburgh after not living up to a big five-year contract. They could go with a couple of their younger prospects, as in Lieber Hayek, who has seen some NHL time, but has showed he might not be completely ready yet and struggled at some points. They could turn to big-time prospect and former first-round pick Keandre Miller. Miller has been a standout defenseman for the U.S. junior team the last couple seasons and had two great years at University of Wisconsin. The last player to watch out for is Anthony Boteto, a local guy from Long Island. He played for Winnipeg last year and is a very solid stay-at-home defenseman. He's also very physical and finished 23rd in the NHL last year in hits. Personally, I would like to see Miller pair with one of the veterans, most likely Jack Johnson. I think we see them all at one point crack the lineup, but Ranger fans have been wanting to see Keontae for quite a while now. The early interviews with Rangers brass sounds like they're going to give Miller the first shot at cracking the lineup, but we'll see how training camp pans out. The easiest position to predict is goaltending. Shesterkin and Gorgiev return in net and will play on a rotation of some sort. Shesterkin is getting a lot of colder buzz following his breakout season last year, and the taxi squad goalie is former New Jersey Devil goalie Keith Kincaid. Kincaid will provide the Rangers with a veteran backup who can help in case of emergency. There's a lot to play out in the next few days, but we can all get excited that the season is here. Today we're joined by former New York Ranger goalie Dan Blackburn. We talked to Dan about playing with Mike Richter, his unfortunate injury, and playing with the Rangers alumni team at the Winter Classic. Let's get into an interview with Dan. Today we welcome on the show former first-round Ranger draft pick, Dan Blackburn. Dan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Kyle. So you started your career with the Kootenai Ice. Um, I think I said that correctly. You did. <laughs> In the WHL, you had two really good years with them. You were actually the CHL goaltender of the year, and then you were the WHL playoff MVP, and that led you to being 10th overall with the Rangers. Was that you'd be in the top 10 pick? Well, I mean, I think I was actually rated to go higher than that originally from central scouting. But um, when you go to the draft, you know, you interview with a lot of teams, especially when you're ranked in the first round and you kind of know based on who they have on the depth chart, as far as, you know, are they going to be interested in a goalie or not? And I think there were really only two teams that were, were interested. One of them was um, the Columbus blue jackets. I think they were picking sixth. And then the, the next one was the Rangers. And so I figured it was probably going to be one of those two, but I didn't know which one. And then when you got to New York, uh, obviously there was a goalie named Mike Richter there. But as an 18-year-old, you stepped right in out of the draft and came right into the opening day roster. Um, was that uh, the pressure felt right away from you, uh, knowing that Richter was probably on his last couple years in the league and that you were taken so high? You know, I think looking back on it, when you're that age, I don't know that you really even feel pressure. I think it's just a lot of fun. Um, you know, anytime you're 18, 19, 20, and you get a chance to get on the ice with, you know, players that you watched as a kid growing up, um, I, I really looked at it as more of an enjoyable experience and never really occurred to me there was pressure. 
Now you were 18 years old uh, and you won your first NHL game. So you were the fourth youngest goalie uh, of all time. What was that night like for you? Well, it was really special. Um, I was born in Montreal and so we were playing up in Montreal for that game. And so I had a lot of friends and family there. Uh, both my parents came and came to watch the game. Uh, one from Western Canada, one from uh, Ontario. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a storybook game, played really well, got first star, first win. Um, family was all there to witness it. So it was a, a very cool, very surreal moment in my, one of my highlights of my career for sure. And then that year, uh, you also played in the NHL Youngsters game uh, at the All-Star game. How cool was that experience? It was interesting, especially when you look back on it now. I think I've got a picture somewhere uh, around here of uh, who was on the teams or the various teams. And I mean, basically it's, you know, it's a who's who of the NHL uh, presently. And um, it was nice to be included in that group once upon a time. So playing with Mike for the the two years before he got hurt, um, what did you learn from him uh, just being in the meeting rooms and just being on the ice with him? Well, Mike was always a very hard worker. I I think that was one of the things that you come to realize as just a, a young player in the NHL being around most veterans is how much work goes into being a professional hockey player. Uh, he was always in the weight room after, you know, when he got injured, he was always in the weight room doing his rehab. Um, just always the consummate professional stayed late after practice. He was never the guy that was the last on the ice and first off. He was always one of the first on the ice and one of the last off, which is always a, a good habit, whether you're young or whether you're a veteran. And so, you know, he just helped instill a lot of the work ethic aspect of being a pro and then in your second year he unfortunately um has his final head injury and the next night you actually go out there and uh and pitch a shutout for the rangers was that something going into the game that you knew you kind of had to right this ship knowing that that was a serious injury for the team i don't know that anybody knew how serious it was at the time i mean head injuries are just one of those things you kind of hang out and you wait to see if it's going to get better or is it going to linger and it just kind of lingered and lingered to the point where you know, in a lot of ways, similar to my shoulder injury, you know, you hang out and you wait and you hope you get better and it just never did for him. Um, and so I think it maybe took, took maybe two, three months before I think he decided to retire uh, from when he got injured the second time. And that season you went on a streak of playing 17 straight games. Uh, what was that like from just a mental and physical fatigue standpoint? Well, I mean, it was tiring, <laughs> you know, playing junior used to playing 70 games, not 80 plus all the travel that goes into an NHL schedule. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. Again, looking back on it, hindsight, it was probably the most fun I had in my in my NHL career, certainly, because uh, it was only two years. But um, it was fun to be a number one NHL goalie, if only it was for, you know, 17 games straight. So on those um, Ranger teams, you play with some big time veterans. Uh Mark Messier, I uh, was one of them. Brian Leach, Eric Lindros. Uh, how are those guys in the locker room? Well, <clears throat> they're very calming. Um, you know, honestly, a lot of times it's not about what you what you say; it's about what you don't have to say because you've already been there. And so, uh, you know, just a lot of leadership, um, a lot of calming presence, both in the locker room and on the ice as well. And uh, you know, we had a lot of guys that were, you know. Hall of Fame players or upper, upper echelon NHL players uh, when I played in 01, 02, and 02, 03. Um, it's just a real honor to be on the same ice with those guys. 
and a guy like Brian Leach, how does he help a goaltender in the defensive zone? Well, it's almost like having another goalie on the ice, frankly. Uh, you know, the guys block a lot of shots now, but back then I don't remember guys blocking quite as many. And he would read the play on the power play and he would block more shots than I would most games. And, uh, you know, it's just anything that you don't have to stop and somebody else stops is a, is a blessing. <laughs> uh, also, there's a guy named uh, Pavel Bure that came into the Rangers uh, from a trade. What was he like when he came into the room? Well, I mean, he's an electric player. Uh, you know, his entire career, even even before he retired, he was still probably one of the fastest guys in the NHL. Um, incredible hands, very quick with the puck. Uh, you know, just an incredibly quick release. That, that's the thing that I re- remember practicing and playing against Pavel is that, uh, you know, he can move the puck left to right and shoot it quicker than probably anybody in the league. Who was the toughest guy on the team to practice against? Uh, Kovalev, for sure. He's got, he, had, he had the best hands of any hockey player I've ever seen in my, my life, by a wide margin. So in your second year, the Rangers brought in um, Trottier as the head coach, which is an interesting move just because of his affiliation with the Islanders forever. And he only lasts 54 games, and then Glenn Sather comes behind the bench. Uh, from a team standpoint, did you guys see that coming? Um, and, and what was the reaction kind of afterwards when you saw Sather step up? I, you know, I think that you kind of have an inkling that there might be a change coming just because obviously the team wasn't performing up to, you know, where Slats wanted us to be. And, um, you know, of course, it, it had been a couple of coaches already. And so Slats, I think, felt a little bit of heat himself to kind of jump behind the bench and take over the reins to see if he could get more out of the, you know, the players that we had in the room already. And, um, you know, I, I think we performed a little bit better. I know we didn't make the playoffs. But, uh, you know, he was he was the coach for the end of that year. Um, Trotz was a great, great human being, one of the nicest human beings that I've ever met playing hockey, just more of an assistant coach personality than a head coach personality. And how is Sather's personality in the locker room? Did you see it change from him being president GM to like a head coach role? Did his demeanor change? You know, honestly, I don't know that it really did. He was just slats. <laughs> He was just Slats, whether he was the GM or Slats, whether he was the coach. Of course, he's more intimately involved in the nitty gritty of, you know, what's going on on an individual player basis when he's the coach, because that's that's his job at that point. Versus as the GM and president, you know, you're a step removed and, and, and your job is to stay a step step removed and be more objective. Um, but I don't know that he personally really changed hardly at all. Now, after the second year, was there a, did you guys have, you know, post-season meetings, I guess you'd have it with Sather, where you knew Richter wasn't returning and they kind of looked to you and said, you know, this is going to be your team next year, or is that something that would have happened more in training camp? Well, after my second year, um, we traded for Mike Dunham halfway through my second year. And so I played a bunch of games in the first half and then we traded for Mike from the Predators. And uh, he came in and, you know, I heard I didn't play a lot my, the, the last half of my second year. Mike played phenomenal. Uh, and so I can't remember if he was a free agent or not at the end of the season. But I think that at best we had a discussion about it being a toss up and we'll see in training camp who's going to play more. And, you know, certainly Slats didn't tell me that I was going to be the starting goalie at the end of my second season. And then, unfortunately, you have the shoulder injury uh, training for the upcoming season. 
Did you know right away when you hurt the shoulder or is it something that kind of progressed? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. He looked at me. I have been his patient for more than 20 years. And he said, this is really strange. You're an African-American, age 57. I've never seen this before. This back pain that you're continually having with no signs of osteoporosis. No signs, exactly. And I didn't have any signs of osteoporosis in my family history. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I mean, it was the most innocuous injury you can imagine. Uh, just lifting weights in the off-season, doing a bench press, not even a heavy bench. And I uh, just felt a little tweak in my shoulder, um, something that happens, you know, not uncommonly when you work out. Um, just kind of nursed it for a couple of days, and it just kind of got progressively more and more sore over the period of about two weeks, uh, to the point where I was having a hard time even moving my arm around. And um, I went to training camp, a summer training camp the Rangers put on at the University of Calgary for prospects and young guys that played on the team or in the minors. And um, basically was examined there by um, the local doctor and kind of they, they gave me the look and the talk that, hey, you're being a big baby. You just don't want to be at this camp and, you know, you should get your butt out on the ice. And so by this point, I can barely lift my arm and I'm out there for about maybe 10 minutes dive for a puck and separate my shoulder. And, uh, you know, that's when it, that was a more serious injury of the two by far. And then a couple of days, maybe a week later, I was back in New York and the t- one of the team doctors looked at me and he said, yeah, you've got, uh, you've got nerve damage. And that was all it took. And it was just a waiting game to see if anything was going to get better. And of course it never did. And how many surgeries did you have on the arm to try to get to, uh, to come back? I just just the one surgery, uh, a lot of treatment. Uh, of course, you know, there's not a whole lot of things you can do for, for um, nerve damage, as most people know. You know, they can go in, they do some stimulation on it with um, kind of like needles they stick into your nerves and hook you up to like an electric battery and prod you uh, to see if they can make your nerve generate a signal or receive a signal. So that's pretty common, but uh, just the one surgery. And then that comeback, so that was actually the lockout year was the, I guess, the, when you were attempting your comeback, mm-hmm. what was it like, uh, were you in the Ranger facility during the lockout or was that something you had to do on your own because of the league was locked out? No, I was one of the uh, only people in the facility. Uh, initially, there was me and somebody else, but if you were injured, you were still get, you still got paid and you were still allowed and supposed to come into the training, the training rink. And so I was in there with uh, Jim Ramsey and um, Jerry Deneen and Pat Bowler and all those guys. And it was just me and them hanging out every day um, doing rehab. And then about halfway through the season, you know, I would get on the ice occasionally to see if I would, I noticed any difference. But halfway through the season, we basically came to the conclusion that um, my nerve was probably, my arm was not going to get better. And so I needed to try to do something different that was going to allow me to try and work around my um, disability, so to speak. And so that's when we kind of came up with, well, hey, 
you know, why don't I try to play with two blockers because that uses a different, the blocker uses a different muscle than um, trying to catch. And so we just practiced with that. We made that decision that that's going to be a final decision. I just got to try to make this work. I practiced like that for a couple of months. And then um, about, I think it was in January or February, basically decided that I was going to voluntarily go off of the injured reserve list, stop getting paid and go and try to play in the East Coast League with two blockers. And so that's what I did. So when you did go to the two blockers, did you see any advantage to that over a glove? Or is it just basically, uh, you know, the last chance to try to fix the, the problem? No, I mean, looking back on it, I see a lot of advantages to that over a glove. Um, you know, of course, nobody had ever done it before. Um, for obvious, I mean, catching has some utility to it that a blocker doesn't. But, you know, playing with two blockers, you just take up more space, just the orientation of your elbow and your arm predominantly. And so there were definitely some advantages that had I have had my regular um, proprioception in my hands and my arm, that I think I certainly could have made that work just as well as a glove, if not better. And when you did go down to the coast and play, did you feel comfortable towards the end of the season? Or was it one of those things at the end of the season, you just thought, okay, maybe, you know, it's time to move on? Well, you know, I know I could have played in the coast or the American League like that. But at the end of the, the day, I kind of I ran out of so I had so many games to test this out before my insurance was going to be voided. And it really just came down to the reality that, you know, is an NHL team going to sign a one armed goalie? You know, and, and the odds of that happening to play in the NHL are going to be slim to none. Like not only do I have to be as good as I was before, I have to be better than that um, for them to take that type of a risk, uh, you know, on me. And I, it just seemed unrealistic that that was going to happen. It seemed far more likely that I was going to end up being a minor league player and, you know, making a hundred thousand dollars a year and void my insurance money just, just to, just to ride the bus. And it just didn't make, it didn't make business sense. And I don't know that my heart was in it at that point in time. Once I kind of came to that realization. Have you known or know of any other goalies who have experienced something like that? Um, I, well, I know Danny Heatley had a, the same shoulder injury as I did as far as a nerve damage, but of course, playing forward, you can, you can play with, I play men's league forward now all the time and it doesn't bother me at all. It's just certain things uh, like playing goalie, swimming, anything with my hand over my head is, is not the best. And during your recovery and comeback, were there any Rangers on the team or anyone in the front office that was really supportive that, um, you know, kept in touch with you while you were there? Well, I mean, I would see all the all the uh, staff, of course, during lockout, you know. But uh, no, once I went out to Victoria to play in the East Coast League, um, Slats came out and watched me play one weekend, see, uh, you know, how I was able to play or not able to play. But um, other than that, they kind of just let me do my thing and uh, work through the process. So talking about those Ranger teams, was there anyone in particular um, that you look back and have some funny stories about or, you know, really had a big impact on you? Um, I mean, just a, a, yeah, a couple of small ones. I, I remember being in, uh, I think it must have been Philadelphia, uh, my first season, right at the very beginning. And of course, I'd showed up to New York with my Canadian dress shoes on. And so my can Canadian dress shoes, for those of you who don't know, are basically the dress shoes that have a tread about an inch and a half thick 
because in Canada, when you wear dress clothes, you usually have to load the bus in about a foot of snow in Western Canada. And so you would dare not have a leather sole. And so I showed up wearing those. And uh, Eric Lindros, after one of the games, or maybe dinner one night, I think it was in Philadelphia, he's like, hey, Blackie, you got to come with me. I'm going to take you shoe shopping. So he took me into some store he knew, and uh, he bought me my first pair of dress shoes, you know, Rangers appropriate dress shoes. And of course, I wanted to take my old shoes home in the box just in case they sent me back to Kootenai. He wouldn't let me. That's pretty good. Um, so you did make the ultimate comeback, though, for the Winter Classic, uh, playing in front of a sellout crowd down in Philadelphia. What was that experience like being around, you know, Ranger royalty like uh, Roger Bear and Eddie Jockman uh, there on the ice with you? Well, it was really cool. Uh, it was one of the you know, one of the coolest hockey experiences I, I would say I had in my hockey career. When you retire as young as I do, though, you, you know, it is kind of odd that I get included in a lot of the alumni events. And of course, I'm 37 now, but I've been included for like the last 15 years or so. And so, you know, you get used to hanging out with all these old guys all the time, uh, even though, the, you know, they're a fair amount older than me even now. But, uh, you know, it was a real honor to be able to play and to be picked, frankly. And, uh, you know, again get my family out there and be part of an event that you know for all intents and purposes I don't know that my hockey resume really entitled me to be there but uh, just the way the cards fell I was able to go and you know some of the other guys weren't able to play like Mike Richter uh, and so it was, it was Van Beesbrook and I that were the two goalies and in the game you played really well you only gave up one goal and it was to Hall of Famer Mark Howe so uh, pretty good performance did you think afterwards maybe uh, maybe a comeback <laughs> Those guys are moving a lot slower than what uh, even they move in the minors. Trust me. Uh, are there any other stories you want to share from your playing days? Um, you know that really stick with you now when you think back. Uh, I, you know, I, I, initially when you first get there, you have um, some different interactions with folks. And I remember one of my first practices, uh, Dave Carpa, who played defense for us my first year, we're sitting in the locker room before practice, and he's like, "Hey, Dano." who do you think has the hardest shot on our team? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know, Vladdy Malikov. And he's like, oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, you're right. He's got a pretty hard shot. And so then uh, warm up in practice, he comes down the wing and he takes a slap shot right off my collarbone. <laughs> and he skates up to me and says, Dano, who do you think has the hardest shot now? <laughs> did, uh, did they have a rookie party? We did. We did. At the uh, the end of my first season, um, the only rookies on the team were myself and Mikhail Samuelson, uh, who played for the Rangers and um, Red Wings and Canucks. And so at the end of the season, we had a lot of Russians on our team. And so they set it up to go to uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn and some Russian nightclub. And um, all I remember is there were guys standing at every table. No matter when you took a sip of, they put more vodka in your glass at least in our glasses, probably everybody else's was water. And, uh, you know, after dinner, him and I have to get up and sing, uh, God bless America. And uh, I don't know, the star spangled banner and all kinds of American songs. And of course his English was okay at best. And he certainly didn't know the words to God bless America. So it was really just me singing to a nightclub full of drunk Russians. Good times. And when you first came into the league, you know, coming right in from the WHL, what was the difference in speed and getting up, you know, getting your game onto that level? Was that a huge adjustment for you? 
You know, I'd say the biggest difference from that level to the NHL, it's not necessarily, it's not the speed of the shots. It's really the extra pass that they make in the NHL. Um, you know, and I would say that about most levels, as you move up higher levels, there's an extra pass or an extra play that the players at that level will make that they don't make at a lower level. And so it's really just about, you know, having really good ice awareness and understanding what those options are. And that's, that's what makes you be able to be a great goalie or even a great player for that matter is being able to understand those options uh, as well as the people, you know, the, the uh, offensive team with the puck. When you first retired, you worked with some goalies um, for a goalie institute. Do you see now when you watch the games, is there a difference in goalie technique from when you were in the league to now that's a noticeable difference? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say when I played, a lot of goalies really didn't have any necessarily technique or formal training. Uh, whereas when you watch today, you see a lot of the same things from all of the goalies. Um, for the vast majority are playing very similar styles very similar tactics um, based on what the um, offensive team is doing with the puck. And then anytime when you're on the ice, I know obviously you're a professional athlete and, you know, you have to keep it professional, but was there ever a time where you saw a guy in the opposing team? You're like, wow, I'm playing against, you know, so-and-so tonight. Well, I, of course, the first couple of games you play in the NHL, you're, you're like that um, no matter what team you're playing against, um, I remember playing, I think one of our first couple of games we played against the Penguins. So played against Mario Lemieux, um, you know, it's, you know, one of the highest, one of the best hockey players of all time. Um, you know, I, I think one of my first games, I think the first goal I got scored on me was by Peter Bondra again, a hall of fame guy. So yeah, I mean, you, you definitely get nervous the first handful of games. And just what, I don't know if you can describe the emotion, but. What is that feeling like being in goal at Madison Square Garden as a sellout and and say against Calgary pitching that shutout? Like how what what kind of feeling is that? Uh, I, I think it's a, it's really a feeling of satisfaction, I would say, or accomplishment because you know you're it's what you strive for your entire life, your entire career as a kid uh, is to be there and be able to play well in a moment like that and um, to be able to share it with your friends and family. It's, you know, it is a dream come true. Uh, unfortunately for me, it only lasted a couple of years, but um, I de definitely had some great moments like that. You said you still play men's league forward now. You, uh, you putting up a lot of goals? Oh yeah, have to. And, uh, and you never, and I never apologize when I hit the goalie in the face. <laughs> well, Dan, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. And I uh, really appreciate you coming Thanks for on. having me, Kyle. I enjoyed it. Thank you again to Dan Blackburn for joining us today. It was a lot of fun sitting down and talking about his Rangers career. And that does it for episode four of the Broadway Hat Podcast. Please hit the follow button on Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at KHallNY for your latest Rangers news. And also follow our Broadway Hat Podcast Instagram account to be notified when the newest episodes come out. Thanks for listening.
Iowans. You have dozens of betting options. Try a sports book built by bettors and run by bettors. Fred Doan started Betfred over 50 years ago with funds from a winning bet, and he's been known for delivering the best betting experience ever since. Visit BetfredSports.com to give us a try. New customers betting $50 get 111 in Fred bets and up to 200 Fred bets per week for five weeks. Terms apply. Proud partner of the Iowa Cubs and Iowa Wild. Must be 21 plus. Wagers only accepted in Iowa. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-BETS-OFF.